the primary contradiction for me is around the idea of justice between states and justice within states. And South-South, I think, has articulated a very strong, credible and important claim around justice between states. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. My guest in this final episode of season two is Emma Maudsley. She's a reader in human geography at Newnham College and director of the Margaret Anstey Centre for Global Studies at the University of Cambridge. Emma and I discuss the modalities of South-South cooperation and the factors that help explain the remarkable expansion of South-South cooperation in recent decades. In addition, we discuss the role of state-owned enterprises and private sector actors and how we ought to better understand the performance of gift-giving by partners in the Global South under the umbrella of South-South cooperation. We've had some great guests this season, and the show has attracted thousands of new listeners in many parts of the world. Thank you all for listening and for all the positive and most encouraging feedback that we've received this year. Please follow our Twitter account at GlobalDevPod and share our episodes with your colleagues and friends. We expect to be back in a couple of months in season three of the show with another bunch of great guests. Thank you, and I wish you all a most enjoyable summer. I'm a great fan of your work, Emma, so it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a real delight to be here. Emma, you've worked extensively on South-South cooperation and development policy over the years. What would you highlight as the characteristic features of South-South cooperation since it began, I believe, in the 1950s? Yeah, sure. So um, it won't come, I think, as a surprise to anyone if I start off by saying it's incredibly diverse. A little bit like uh, someone once described foreign aid as, as like a Swiss army knife. Um, I, don't, I want to be careful about drawing an analogy between foreign aid and South-South <laughs> cooperation. They are very different beasts, of course. But the Swiss army knife is a nice one. You know, it, 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 just like um, other parts of foreign policy, there's, there's a multiple sort of set of activities and agendas. And there's also a huge difference between, you know, sort of Brazil, for example, taking part in huge projects in Mozambique or smaller projects or food or you know, peacekeeping or infrastructure lending. It's all very different. And of course, it's very different between countries, too. So I think the diversity is the first thing that we should say. But then the second thing is that really there are some uniting principles. And I, I going to call them myths, not in myths as in untrue, but myths as in the Roland Barthes idea, that they are kind of overarching ideas that that are sometimes more honoured in the breach, but nonetheless, they are really important and they run very deep. And they have their origins in the anti-colonial struggles and in the um, newly independent countries who fought for 
greater say and greater autonomy in global politics in, in a world that would both politically and economically be more just and democratic. And through those ideas of then often quite structurally weakly placed countries acting in solidarity, showing solidarity to each other and coming together. So those very important principles of respect for sovereignty, of horizontality, of this being a mutually beneficial relationship, all of those are very important parts of South-South. And we can find plenty of things that demonstrate they're also a little bit fragile. And I would say they're also changing quite a lot right now. But historically, those are very important parts of the sort of South-South animating principles. So as I understand it, Emma, this South-South cooperation, this modality of South-South cooperation, this has evolved over the years, right? So I read in your work that particularly in the past couple of decades, I think, that there's been this rather successful expansion of South-South cooperation. And we're talking about this assertion of a shared developing country identity, as you mentioned, the rejection of hierarchical donor-recipient relations. There's this focus on expertise and so-called appropriate development. And as you also mentioned, an insistence on mutual opportunity. But do you think that has changed in the last couple of decades? Because I've read in your work that you've often characterized South-South cooperation as 1.0 and 2.0, and perhaps we are moving into a 3.0 phase. So what has changed and what does South-South cooperation 3.0 promise in the near future? Thanks, Dan. I'm a bit embarrassed about using those those designations. (laughs) Um, I, I wavered backwards and forwards on that because... It's so easily proved to be wrong, you know, and and I say in the paper, it's just one way of slicing historically through the enormous diversity of experience and practice, you know. So India's path is different to Brazil's and so on. And historically contingent, so India's relationship with Afghanistan is not quite the same as its relationship with Sri Lanka. I hope that anyone reading it will forgive me this sweeping generalisation. I I never claim it's the timeline for South-South cooperation. But I think that one can nonetheless, uh, as we all struggle, don't we, with the balance between the exact and the detailed and the specific and trying to draw out meaningful generalisations. I think that we can see um, some big and significant shifts in the narrative and conduct of South-South cooperation. And the way I frame that is that I think it's a results in many ways of the successful growth and the growth materially we can see you know the the huge increase in investment or in activities or in uh, educational places so you you name your field and we can see a a boom in south-south visibility and activity it's also been incredibly successful ideationally in the sense that if you go back to the early 2000s i think the dialogue that was opening up with the dac and with other donors was pretty well consciously and subconsciously attempting to co-opt the southern partners and to sort of quite a strong um, surprise surprise sort of arrogance amongst the sort of so-called traditional or established donors the DAC donors that they knew how to do it and they would show the others how to do it and that's no longer anywhere near the case and if anything I think the west the DAC donors have been I know the west isn't the same as the DAC donors but they've been learning from southern modalities and approaches And southern partners have grown in their 
clear identity as legitimate, effective actors in international development in a way that they were neglected, not just by the mainstream establishment, but very interestingly, I would say, by a lot of critical scholars until the early 2000s. And, and myself included, I've always put my hand up, but how could I have not really clicked to Southern Development Partnerships before then? So that success has brought with it costs. We know that China is feeling very exposed on the on the, uh, the fragility of some of its loans in different parts of Africa, so too is India. There's risks, there's visibility that isn't always desirable visibility uh, if you're being blamed for uh, something. And simply by engaging in development or of whatever variety in a partner country, the, I think perhaps some of the early sort of slightly not optimistic and naive narratives around South-South have been shown to be much more complex. You know, development is a often a violently destructive as well as creative process. People win and lose, and it's not easy. And I think that's been brought home to some of the Southern partners. We could think about sort of Brazil and pro-Savannah, for example. So I, I do think we're seeing shifts, um, and they're also, of course, contextualised within some of the emerging geopolitics, particularly around, say, China, and in the post-financial crisis and the sort of evolving way in which uh, Western partners are increasingly embracing financialization, industrial policy, and so on. And I think in South-South, very, very broadly, we see much more pragmatic language and much more cautious, actually, about some of the claims of Southern partnership and a much more competitive language, I think, as well, between some of the big players. And we see in some places, of course, the, the, the retreat as well from a more active southern partnership engagement. So Brazil would be an example of that. So it's evolving, and it always has. You know, we've been here a little bit before in the 1980s, but evolving in this current context and conjuncture of circumstances. Yeah, that's fascinating, Emma, because there appears to be several interests involved. So on the one hand, you could say that South-South cooperation is driven by a country's experience with, say, colonialism and underdevelopment and some sort of a reaction against, say, Western models. So here it is more about combating perhaps some sort of uh, asymmetrical relationship that the Global South has had historically with the dominant global north. And on the other hand, there's also the material approach. And this is something that six and others highlight, I think you also do in your work, that there is this attempt by the global south, some of the major powers in the global south, that using south-south cooperation is a useful, a very helpful tool for improving the reputation of these emerging powers to, to get more support from other Southern countries in the UN or in other multilateral settings to pursue broader economic agendas, all of that. But do you see sometimes a contradiction between the normative approach and say the material approach that maybe of late there's been more of a focus on maybe a reputation-seeking goal that has somehow underlined the South-South cooperation narrative than the normative approach? 
By normative, in this case, you mean the claim to mutual solidarity and benefit. That's correct. And this kind of a joint experience of fighting colonialism. Yeah. So I think now it's less, while those origins are very important, it's also sort of neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism. You know, the, the world is still structured grotesquely unfairly. And I think there's every reason to support the attempts by some southern countries to lead and to contest that structural inequality. Um, and you can see that in representation in the IMF and so on. I think where the contradiction comes is in there's very little sense that most southern partners are really engaged with a more inclusive, I'm even going to say, I don't want to say democratic in uh, a Western sense, but a, a, an inclusive development so that they are sometimes buying into financial and modernist promises of liberation, which are partly true. You know, we all know that one of the failures of the DAC donors was they moved away from things like infrastructure and economic growth. But it seems that the sometimes these um, the Southern partners are willing to sit within what is a very unequal world that in which states are not always the primary repository of the, of those those inequalities, but it's elites capital versus the poor, the smallholders. So I think those though the primary contradiction for me is around the idea of justice between states and justice within states. And South South I think is articulated a very strong, credible and important claim around justice between states and I think where it's much less good and it's an inherent contradiction it's not easily resolvable if you're also if you want to respect sovereignty but what do you do about justice within states and um, it's not an easy question to ask but I don't think they are leading for the most part a more inclusive development agenda it, it varies of course it varies it's not a, it's not um, simplistic but overall that's my concern Despite the claim that South-South cooperation is about redressing unequal relationships, say, between the South and the North, there may be, in certain cases, a replication of certain practices that the South felt that the North was undertaking before. So maybe you would have certain major powers like India, China, Brazil, duplicating, replicating, maybe very similar exploitative practices in relation to this collaboration they have with other countries in the South. Is there a danger that that can happen or that is happening? Yeah, I think it's definitely a concern. I suppose where I'm worried is that what I see is a language of the new Cold War, which is being amplified. It's almost being prefiguratively created. And the, the framing in particular of China as, as the enemy, when, of course, China is doing many, almost uh, exactly, I like your language of replicating and duplicating, doing exactly what France and uh, the UK and the US and others do around the world. I mean, France's relationships with West Africa are jaw-droppingly colonial right now at this very moment. France's relationship with West Africa beggars belief. And yet... It has the effrontery to criticise China, an enormous amount of debt held by uh, indebted countries in Africa, including highly indebted countries 
is actually held by you know European uh, institutions and banks and and bond markets you know <laughs> and yet China is the one that comes up for criticism you know the the, the West used the debt crisis in the early 1980s to unleash the most appalling policies across many parts of the world and notably sub-Saharan Africa. I think, you know, the very first reaction is the staggering hypocrisy of many Western actors and commentators, sort of self-righteous denunciations of countries which are using development funding and partnerships to pursue their own interests. I mean, what is, <laughs> it, it, it so defies belief. You sometimes think, have I misunderstood this? That's not to say there aren't concerns, of course. And as many people have pointed out, African agency and partner agency becomes very important. But it's not a simple solution either, because we're caught up in a, a world in which no individual country can at the moment do very much about things like transfer mispricing or the way in which the City of London acts effectively to funnel off, channel off uh, enormous amounts of money from all around the world to keep it hidden away from the taxman. I, I know I'm wondering, I'm wondering slightly as I say all of this. I think the, the critique of South-South cooperation is subject to enormous amounts of prejudice and ignorance. That's not to say we shouldn't be carefully looking at some of the evidence and the detail, trying to talk and understand from different points of view, be critical and reflective about DAC-led development or, you know, if you like, with apologies to Japan, you know, Western development, but uh, we need to do so on a scholarly basis. And that's most emphatically not happening in things like the narratives around China and African debt at the moment. It's, it's ideological, it's almost determined to pick a fight, and it's ultimately, sad to say, stupid, I think, that there are reasons to engage with China critically, more cooperatively and uh, more competitively, but but not around this. Um, and at the moment, I think we've got bad evidence and bad. Unfortunately, uh, you know, Joe Biden is is I think taking a really problematic line, for example. A very illustrative example of what you just said, Emma, is what happened last week in Cornwall when the G7 met. And there was this announcement of a major new initiative to support infrastructure building in the global south. And while a lot of my colleagues, especially in Africa, have been longing for that kind of a commitment from the West. A lot of people have been saying, don't criticize China, don't criticize other emerging countries, show us a proper viable Western alternative. While this is a good announcement, there was very little information on the specifics. So that is one problem. There's this tendency of announcing major initiatives, but not really following through. And secondly, another problematic aspect is that the perception that is created is that we're doing this from the West to combat China. So it's not because of solidarity with the global South. It's not because we really want to invest in infrastructure. It is not because of win-win. We are doing it to combat China. And this, I think, is not a very useful way going forward because a lot of countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America can see through this very easily. 
as not being genuinely interested in their development, but more because of geopolitics. Absolutely. And I, I know that your sort of close connections, say, for example, in Malawi, you will certainly be talking with your friends and colleagues as I am with mine. I think if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, um, <laughs> I think the problem with countries, particularly like the US and the UK and perhaps France as well, is they sort of believe their own bullshit. You know, I know many people in um, the erstwhile DFID who are doing a great job, actually. I mean, I, I, I'm very critical of aspects of aid and development, but they do have learned they're hold, trying to hold some high standards and so on. But the, the overall picture is one in which I think the West is, well, I, I say the West, I, I'm sitting in the UK, so let me just talk a little bit more for the UK, is caught up in, a, in an odd myth. And I think in the UK, we have this post-imperial hubris, a lack of reflection. And there are lots of examples like you mentioned at Cornwall you know this announcement of all this money which we know is very actually actually very hard to to really pull down private finance if that's the goal and when it is pulled down are we going to be spending you know sort of 10 times the amount of a Chinese contractor to build a road or a railway and the Chinese are having a lot of fun right now posting lots and lots of pictures of this sort of appalling American infrastructure and you know, like various sort of bits of news about how long it's taking us to build HS2 or whatever it might be. Where we think we have either the finance or the expertise is a, is a big question. And at the same time, this sense that, you know, the obvious subtext or not even subtext, the supertext that it's, it's against China. You know, of course, so many partner countries are insulted and so they should be by this. And I think what is sad for me is if ever there was a moment when the world needed to collaborate, it's now. You know, we are we are confronting, you know, we're sitting in the pandemic, knowing the way that climate change is going to come down on us, and it is coming down on us. And at the same time, you have like world leaders, and I include Xi Jinping among them, and indeed Narendra Modi, and indeed uh, Joe Biden, bigging up this kind of conflictual model. And it just seems, well, wouldn't it be fantastic if um, we asked, you know, our partner countries in Africa what they wanted and needed, and then then sort of said, okay, we've got some some really experienced firms that can actually build that those roads, and we've got other, you know, say uh, let's say British expertise around aspects of the engineering or some other things. You know, we could we could we could bring our respective skills together to work for what partner countries wanted in a collaborative model. And in the context of things like pandemics and uh, climate change, and yet we, we are going in such the wrong direction, and development is being dis- ever more distorted, hardly for the first time. This is this is what development does. Of course, it gets sucked into the politics of the Cold War, of so-called war on terror, and and here we are again. And if there's one thing we know is that though none of those prioritise the needs of developing communities or countries or indeed the populations who are the taxpayers in, in say, my own country, will not benefit, I don't believe, from this approach. It, it's disappointing to see that, it's sort of, you know, of course I'm thrilled that we've got, the world has got rid of Trump for now, but I'm so disappointed to see this cozying up of particularly Johnson and, and Biden around the, the new Cold War. I think it's a desperate mistake, and, and the, the whole development infrastructure in the UK is suffering as we know. 
You know, one of the persistent complaints from my colleagues and from many of the policymakers I interact with, and I'm sure you do too, in the global south, is that the West is of late become, or perhaps for a long time, been very fond of these generous, ambitious proclamations, promises, but not really following up on these promises. So you could promise $100 million in emergency assistance, and when you really get down to the nitty-gritties, maybe one-tenth was actually provided. So I think a lot of countries in the global south are pretty accustomed to these grand declarations not really materializing. The other thing has to do with expertise, as you mentioned, Emma. I read a recent piece where, and this is a bit of the, the, the Chinese laughing at the West, because it turns out that there are very few Western companies that have the capacity and the experience and the skills to undertake these major infrastructure projects in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. So one analysis I read was that this is actually good for China because all of these Chinese companies will suddenly be bidding for Western contracts, you know? So if the West was actually launching this, if the G7 was launching this to combat the rise of China, it's going to actually have the opposite effect. Yes, yes. I mean, China is already winning contracts uh, from the World Bank and others. And of course, underneath all of the posturing, it may well be that there's, you know, the, the old normality is that there's, in fact, an awful lot of cooperation, there's, there's joint ventures and so on. Um, and we know that that's happened throughout Again, I mean, different in different places with different actors, but but the language of difference isn't going to help. And it might actually be what China needs. We know that Chinese private investment, state backed and and state backed private investment into infrastructure in Africa is declining for various reasons. So actually, it could come as a shot in the arm if <laughs> if um, the G seven were able to mobilize the finance needed and to support. Chinese companies building roads and railways. But again, I think critical thing is what if you know, they turned properly to the partner countries and thought, you know, were led by them in what they wanted and needed and thinking through a, say, system strategy, regional-based infrastructure and so on. Um, so, yes, there's all sorts of potentially positive payoffs here. And I don't know whether they, the, the pragmatics of trade and other forms of commercial cooperation will trump the the political rhetoric. But the political rhetoric seems to be getting very hot, and that's alarming. You raise a very important point here, Emma, which really plagues development or has done so in the last five decades, and that is the lack of consultation with those who one is trying to assist or talking with countries in the global south, asking policymakers, asking citizens, what is it that you actually need? Despite all the criticism of China, you could say that at least there is an attempt by Chinese policymakers, by the diplomatic community that China has in, in place in many of these countries to actually ask governments, what is it that you need? And this is what I can offer. So similarly, I'm often surprised that the West fails consistently to learn from that experience of what China and others have done more successfully is to make others feel, or so-called recipient countries feel important, to consult them, to ask them, what is it that you need? So it appears to me that it is a very 
rushed kind of an effort, you know, whenever there are these high level publicized events like the G7 summit, there is this pressure to come up with something new, but one doesn't do the homework. And the only reason, and maybe I am generalizing too much now, but it seems to me that the major reason why one even announces an ambitious strategy is to somehow give the impression that this group of countries that is called the G7 or, or whichever country is making this announcement, that they are still important, that they still have a say in global affairs. And so maybe that explains this lack of consultation. But as you rightly say, if they had only asked people what is it that they that they needed, perhaps these initiatives would not be just one of rhetoric, but actually implementable in practice. Yes. I think, you know, as you as you said, and as you as you know, it is complicated. So there have been examples, if, if I recall right, the erstwhile DFID supported the Nepalese government to ne- in negotiating, I think, with India about some of its and the dam development, hydropower development. And they were providing some of the technical assistance. And of course, a lot of these projects now, I mean, are really very, very complex, financially complex, legally complex, and so on. And I think there is a there is, is sometimes a uh, an inequality in capacity to negotiate and to define what are one's own needs and wants. Then, of course, there's this question of okay, what is this thing called Nepal or Kenya? That there are conflicting needs and wants in those places. So it isn't a, a clear, a singular sense of Kenya wants this. There are there are differences between regions, between groups, pastoralists and farmers, small business people and large business people, and so on. So I think it, that's not always, that's by inherently not straightforward. And when China does a, a very good job of talking about listening to its partners, I, th- I think that is certainly, there is, a, there is a truth there. But at the same time, we also know there's some very murky politics and some murky relationships taking place. The colonial powers left extremely weakened political and, and uh, you know, kind of authoritarian tending uh, political structures and then the depredations of structural adjustment, hollowed out states. So that sense of, of who we're asking in whose interest isn't straightforward. So I think it's complex when it gets to the Southern Partnership, what, what sovereignty means in, in that context. But what I absolutely couldn't agree with you more about is the G7. They are still powerful. I mean, even if if, if the economic gravity is shifting, there's no doubt that the G7 represents a lot of economic and political power in the world. But my goodness, they are learning slowly, aren't they? They're, <laughs> they're a long, long way. And it's insulting. It, and you also think, it's sad that they think, and I have a horrible feeling they might be right, that their populations go along with this. You know, that we, you know that in, in the West, this turns to sort of populism and the shift rightwards and this narrative of national greatness, whether it's being articulated by the US or the UK, is popular. And we really need to be moving a long way past that. So, yes, I do agree with you about your analysis of the of the G7 in this regard, but sad to say, I think they are still pretty, pretty influential.
Well, you know, I should be also fair to the West. It's not just the West that doesn't do its homework. It's also the Chinese, actually. They've learned of late, you know, and I'm thinking about uh, Venezuela, the kind of defaults there, and they burnt their fingers in Venezuela. I've been studying another example of late in Kenya, the coal-fired power plant in Lamu that was temporarily shut down, and now that project is cancelled. It was shut down by an environmental tribunal because locals protested against it. It turns out that the Chinese are also learning that they can't just rely on consulting with a dubiously elected person, you know, or, or just the president or the prime minister, but that there are legitimacy issues here. That's the government of the day does not always enjoy the confidence of the locals. And and there are NGOs and there are people's movements that are actually raising their voices against some of these major infrastructure projects. So doing environmental assessment reports and doing the homework better would actually prevent a lot of the problems down the road. I think the Chinese are learning. I just you know, wish the West was also learning. But moving on to something else, Emma, one of the things that I notice about South-South cooperation is that it is a very heterogeneous group of countries that that are involved. So one, of course, tends to often think about India and China and Brazil, the big actors, but there are, of course, smaller actors involved. So that's one thing I'd like you to please help us better understand maybe who among the smaller actors you think have been perhaps championing a newer version, maybe a, a, a different version of South-South cooperation. And the other thing I notice is that because of this heterogeneity, you have actors adopting different practices. So it is often difficult to just say there's this one model, right? So I notice, for example, and going back to this point about lack of expertise in terms of private sector companies being able to implement infrastructure projects, I know that it's not just the Western countries, even India doesn't have that many big companies that could, you know, implement these very ambitious infrastructure projects in Africa. It may have six or seven, but China has maybe more than a hundred. So India has been, as I understand it, been highlighting, you know, frugal innovation, doing things cheaply, effectively, adopting a different kind of an approach. So basically what I'm trying to get at is if you could help us better understand the the different types of modalities or strategies that are involved in this very broad umbrella that is often termed as South-South cooperation. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important. When I first started doing this work, um, I was, you know, my interest was caught by some of the emerging discussions about um, China-Africa. Of course, Deborah Brotigam, Giles Mohan and others, um, and then uh, Fatu Cheru and, and, and uh, Cyril Obi and many others. Of course, China, both China and the African continent are places that suck in our Western imaginations in different way, ways. And they're very, it's, they're, although there are many African countries, of course, it was often treated as one. And I think it cast a sort of too strong a, a shadow over the rest of Southern development partnerships. So one of the things that I did, I was aware as, you know, I'm not an expert on China and I'm not an expert in any way on Africa. So as I started to become interested in this, I turned to the broader field of Southern development partnerships and at, very much as a 
learning as I was going, trying to understand better from different Southern perspectives what was happening. And I think it became really clear to me that it was very important that the analysis of Southern Development Partnership wasn't overly colonised by the debate around China-Africa. So it was uh, fantastic to read. Of course, we know about Cuba's phenomenal contributions to healthcare um, partnerships. Indonesia has been an important regional partner. Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand. We know that uh, Colombia has been very proactive in creating um, partnerships and programmes around in Latin America and beyond. So, you know, Senegal offered assistance to Haiti after the um, terrible earthquake there. So I think it's really important because what that does is it's not that sort of, as it were, emerging revisionist power politics aren't present through, threaded through South-South cooperation with particularly the big, bigger powers, but it is so much more than that. And I think by looking at those smaller countries, more modest, sometimes modest partnerships, it also shows us the, the some of the other dimensions of Southern partnership, where you see those personal relations. In some ways, I think it, the, the, here too, we see change, change. So Indonesia start, has started to be much more, again, sort of quite assertive and pragmatic. Um, we could see that uh, you know, in the language of, this was pre-Trump, Indonesia first. So it's not like the smaller countries are necessarily the virtuous holders of the tradition of Southern partnership. You know, they too are creating, you know, their foreign policy in this context, regional relations, expertise, economic statecraft and so on. But you get a sense of the diversity, the liveliness, the value and the importance of that Southern partnership beyond the sort of altogether too dominating lens of China, Africa. And then, yes, the I mean, India is interesting about how it, in some ways, I think is rather jealously emulate, you know, would like to emulate China and at the same time disparages it and then mm-hmm. draw upon some of its own richer traditions around um, frugal innovation and so on. And that's, I suspect, as much out of necessity as, as of desire. It, it's also tends to, you know, in some of the official rhetoric around China, it tends to demonise China, create China as the other, but actually be rather similar in lots of ways. Indeed. And they even use similar terms like win-win and mutual benefit and solidarity. Well, I mean, I think so. I think that comes from things like Bandung and that's, you know, that's fine. But, you know, India does use state-owned enterprises and it's sort of, you know, the the very, so China sort of, you know, they're they're sort of accused the Chinese of being cold-hearted and the Indians are warm-hearted and so on. And I think there's a, you know, that's a, a rather too simplistic. I mean, this is actually comes back to an earlier point, of course, a real complication, increasingly for all countries, um, but certainly for the Southern Partners, is confusing, oh, I don't know, the blurred and blended nature of Southern Partnerships. So private companies, but even state-owned enterprises that are not directly undertaking foreign policy agendas. Do, they're doing business. And they get conflated with the geopolitical, geoeconomic agendas of their home states. And that there is blurring of blending, for sure. But we see that, you know, there too with some of, you know, increasingly, of course, as the West moves into public-private partnerships, into industrial policy, as it extends its, you know, we've, I've written with a colleague, Jack Taggart, about the collapsing of big D and little d development. And this is going to also um, become increasingly pressing for, say, a country like the UK. How do we 
look at saying McDonald's activities in Afghanistan as a contractor who becomes responsible for decisions that are made sort of down the line. And I think there, you know, China and India are in some ways in the same boat. So the Kolaskars working in Ethiopia, we know there are really controversial politics about the Ethiopian government handing over large amounts of land. Who's responsible then for the contestation of that as a development model? It's very hard to put it on India, on Ethiopia, on the Kolaskars. You know, it, it, it's a much more distributed process. So what characterizes the relationship between, say, these private sector actors, state-owned companies, and the government of, say, India, China, the other major South-South cooperation actors? How do they project their help or assistance or cooperation? Is it a useful way to deflect criticism if, say, private sector actors are involved and a project that never gets you know, completed, you could always blame it on somebody else? Or is there a tendency to package all of this as coming from one country? So what, what is the relationship or what is the contribution of private sector actors in South-South cooperation? I think it's incredibly varied. I, I mean, even from company to company, I don't think we can put a, any singular explanation on it and and also even the kind of con- construct of private and public you know we, we can see revolving doors public private partnerships contracting there, there are so many complex relationships between companies so we know that in the case of india there's a sense that some of the much larger companies are able to have conversations inside the ministry of economic affairs or some other part in a way that smaller companies can't, or they can access lines of credit, so that it isn't even like the private sector is able to do to act as India's champion. It's particular parts of the private sector, and they may or may not be able to draw down on on various forms of revolving door and and relationships. So I really don't think we can say. I think a, one state-owned enterprise in Brazil can be very different to another state-owned enterprise, and certainly China's relationship their state-owned enterprises is different. I think the reality is that we need to look into the detail of particular places, partnerships, experiences, which I know is a frustrating reply, but I don't think there is a singular narrative to be had. I think what does become interesting is to think, well, what are the comparisons? So, for example, if we think about um, Shell and, you know, to what extent is, is the Netherlands or the UK held responsible for some of the activities of Shell in Agoniland, say. So we can think about how the private sector is or isn't evolving. And it's, we certainly see, I think, closer relationships with government right now through industrial policy strategies. So I saw that PwC is about to launch an enormous investment in ESG employees and focus. And in a way, I think this way will become the new form of accountability for non-aid, you know, development finance. But it's going to be a real difficult battle um, to get past corporate greenwashing, corporate ESG washing, whether we're talking about the Kurdiskars or the Chinese sort of uh, bridge and road construction company or, or the new avatar of Shell.
Among the many things I enjoy in your work is the the focus you've often had on gifts and gift theory. And many would say that what major countries in the global south, like India and China and others are doing, is to somehow convey to recipient or junior partners in the global south, here's a gift. And uh, we're doing it, you know, because of the kindness of our hearts. You have to be thankful. And, you know, even though you may not have something now, maybe there's something that you can give us somewhere down the line in the near future. There is also this increased focus on giving visible gifts. You know, I've noticed in Malawi, but also elsewhere, there are these handover ceremonies. There's always this ceremony of sometimes it is just really ridiculous. You know, two motorcycles that are gifted to the Ministry of Health would require a very expensive, far more expensive ceremony to actually you know, hand over these two motorcycles than than what the motorcycles cost in in reality. So, gifts are very important to convey that these partners have good intentions, etc. But there is a problematic relationship, right? If if these gifts are not reciprocated, there is this feeling that if you if if even if a true gift is altruistic, it may be voluntary or unconditional. If it isn't reciprocated, then there could be some sort of a loss of prestige or feeling of inferiority, uh, or it could even be a penalty, thereby creating an unequal relationship. So how do you think we should understand this performance of gift giving by partners in the global South under this South-South cooperation umbrella? Do you see certain problematic aspects or are are these gifts seen to be a routine part of what characterizes South-South cooperation? I originally used gift theory, which derived from uh, people like Marcel Mauss and Bourdieu and Marshall Salins and and many others to try to argue that um, Southern sort of myth, if you like, of of Southern reciprocity, again, not untrue, but a, a very important sort of claim, was not an inferior form of morality to that of the supposed altruism of aid. And of course, we know that aid is is performed as altruistic, but in fact, donors get a huge amount back for their aid. But nonetheless, aid is performed and widely understood as the, altru- the an altruistic donation from rich to poor, which it is. it really is a very poor understanding of what aid is and does. In the early sort of millennium, as as the Southern Partners visibility grew, they were often critiqued for doing sort of aid, sort of inferior aid, because they stressed reciprocity. And so I used gift theory um, to make the case for the the moral value of that reciprocity, because as Marcel Mauss argued, the act of giving, but also the act, the agentic act of choosing to receive is also to choose to engage in a social relationship. And then in, in gift theory, there's this, this sort of concept that reciprocity is encoded in the expectation. You know, I give you a birthday gift. I would probably expect you might accept one back. You might give me one back. Or we talked uh, one time about buying each other a beer in the pub. Um, <laughs> and then Marshall Salmon's very importantly, and, and Bourdieu, 
argued, well, the gift economy is all very well and good, but what happens if one partner or one gender or one country is constantly actually or appears to be gifting, being the provider of the gift? And they talked away about the way then gifts can act to create a symbolic regime of inequality. Ilan Kapoor wrote about this brilliantly in relation to foreign aid. So at this point, of course, it is a performance of a gift. We mustn't never forget that aid is a tool for national interest. And we get, you know, donors get money back for it. They get influence. They get all sorts of things. But it's performed as this singular gift. And it does seem to me like, as you say, if we think of something like COVID vaccine diplomacy, the importance of the performance of that gifting has overtaken the value of that sense of reciprocity. And it's harder and harder to sustain the always somewhat fictional idea of equal partners yes. together. And I mean, for example, I was talking to one very senior and influential champion of Indian Development Partnership who was really enthused and we were having a great conversation. He was telling me about what India was giving to Nepal. And I said, you know, at the, at the end of this conversation, I said, you haven't mentioned one single thing that India is getting from Nepal mm. and he's like oh my god I haven't <laughs> you know and I think that very understandably in some ways of course he'd fallen into that we are the country that can provide yeah um, this is a lesson that everyone needs to learn in a project that I'm running now and in my work um, and so um, and the work of others as well so um, Jennifer Constantine and Alex Shankland and others really brilliantly trying to put that stress on south to north learning south to north north policy transfer and again to come back to an earlier point about collaboration if we could just place ourselves together and think okay let's learn from each other what expertise can we bring to the board and we we could do we could do we could do it so much better and instead, you see, for example, to return to the G7, this doubling down on the West will provide. And it's a shame. It's And gift theory, I think, gives us a handle on some of the symbolic violence of that idea. This pandemic has created some new trends in South-South cooperation. And I'm not sure how in the past five decades, South-South cooperation has, has flowed, you know, Maybe sometimes I get the impression it has been these major powers like India and China providing assistance as they grew, as the economies grew in India and China, there was more expertise, more money, more assistance provided. But now the pandemic seems to have changed things a bit because I mentioned this to you earlier, how Kenya has provided food aid to India when India was going through its second wave. So I see some sort of reciprocity taking place now. And maybe this could continue in the sense that, you know, many countries on the African continent have successfully tackled Ebola and many other crises that other countries in Asia and Latin America could learn from. So could we end on on some sort of an optimistic note well I, I shouldn't ask you to end on an optimistic note if you don't agree but can i get you to please reflect on how you see the future of south south cooperation are you optimistic 
do you see certain changes taking place because of this pandemic? Or do you think we'll return to how things were in the next couple of years? I, I would love to end on a positive note. Um, I think it's quite important um, to try to critically, reflectively, carefully seek out points of hope and optimism, because otherwise it's all too easy to fall into despair. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think um, there are things in the pandemic that have happened that could be really positive. So if you remember the sort of teams of Cuban doctors arriving in Andorra and Italy, yes. the, the the ways in which, I think there was even, I, I'm struggling from the details now, there was some sort of quiet cooperation between India and China at one point early on, the Kenyan donation of food. I think there's also, um, a, it's a great example of the way in which, and I hope we see more and more and more of this, that we know that um, a number of African and uh, Asian countries knew what to do and did it quickly. Of course, like every other country, that doesn't mean it's been um, seamless. I think you know Vietnam is now, for example, struggling um, a bit more. But they were so much better prepared in many ways than the so-called, you know, than the many of the richer countries. So why don't we learn from that? And why don't we also ensure that, say, unlike, for example, Ebola, we start thinking about healthcare systems. We all learn that you, you, these are going to come around again and again and again. So what could we change up and away, away from these vertical funds, dropping in money to specific diseases and think about healthcare systems? Let's learn from Cuba, please, about, about some of those things. It would be really wonderful. Um, you can see, see I, you can hear that I don't sound entirely convinced. <laughs> Take some of the essential lessons from the pandemic of living in a hugely interconnected world in which many southern partners, actors, not just countries, but organizations have critical expertise. So you, I mean, I'm sure you've had the same experience that if you get some sort of, um, some, some forms of say gut infection, the place I want to be treated is in India, not in, in Addenbrooke's, um, because the, you know, the expertise lies there. And we need to see that, you know, our, the, the world challenges we face, and we're going to, we need the expertise of the South and we need to collaborate. So I'd like to think that some of those experiences in the pandemic will drive us together and not apart. It was wonderful to see you again, Emma. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.